This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Sunandita Santana, and we want to remind you that this program broadcasts from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. Tonight, we are so delighted to bring you an important presentation on social determinants of health from Dr. Dolores Roybal, a native Northern New Mexican who has extensive experience in the nonprofit and philanthropic sector. And Enrique Cardial, the executive director for the Bernalillo County Community Health Council, who's also been a public health worker for the last 18 years. This presentation on social determinants of health and health equity was originally presented to the 2022 Leaders for Change Fellows, virtually. We start the hour off with the song, Waiting on the World to Change by John Mayer, a song about being aware of the world's current condition. What are some social determinants of health and why are they important? Dr. Dolores Roybal and Enrique Cardiel answer these questions and share their wisdom with us in a presentation to the 2022 Leaders for Change Fellows. This fellowship is a group of 30 members of youth between the ages of 14 and 24 who represent communities and pueblos from across New Mexico. Now, Leaders for Change Fellows, Jessica Arevalo and Andrew Eccles will introduce Dr. Dolores Roybal and Enrique Cardial. Hello everyone, my name is Jessica. Dr. Dolores E. Roybal is a native New Mexican with an extensive background in community engagement and board governance. She was the executive director of the Con Arma Health Foundation, but retired in May of 2021. But she is still currently a board member of a lot of organizations, such as the Santa Fe Community Foundation, Board of Directors, and the chair of the SFCF Program and Grant Committee, the Scotts House Board, the New Mexico Alliance of Health Council Advisory Committee. Dr. Dolores has worked hard and for a long time to bring equity to New Mexico. And I also have to mention that one of my fellows, Isabel, is her granddaughter. Thank you, Jessica, and it's so nice to meet you, Dolores. I have the honor and privilege today to introduce Enrique Cardia, who has been a public health worker for the last 18 years and is currently the executive director for the Bernalillo County Community Health Equity Council, which strives to improve the health and well-being of all Bernalillo County residents. His family has lived and organized in the International District since 1997, and he also performs with the bands Sin Limite and Las Otras, Las Otras performs music at many May Day events and other social justice events. Um, Enrique has also been a part of La Raza Unida since 1992 and has been a volunteer organizer with the group since 1993. And he continues to support the group as much as possible. His family has been a part of La Raza Unida in various ways, including La Raza Estudiantil, La Raza Unida Youth Committee, and ongoing work. The family has participated in May Day events in Berkey since 1995. Enrique is happy that a coalition such as May Day 505 exists and supports community-based efforts as something healthy for community self-determination. 
thank you both for being here today. Hello, everyone. Um, I appreciate the introduction. I think the only thing I would add is that all of my work over nearly 45 years plus has been in terms of community-based work. And although equity is a relatively new term, I was involved in equity before it became cool. That's, that's how old I am. So I'm happy to, to share some of my experience with that and, and also to learn from you all today. Thank you very much for the opportunity to share some time with you. Enrique, I have uh, certainly heard about your work and it's an honor to meet you and to hear more about what you're doing. It's an honor to be here. Um, I've known Roberta for a long time, uh, been a supporter in different ways for generation justice as much as I can. And yeah, it's an honor to be here. I've heard of Dr. Rival, so it's an honor to be in Dr. Rival's presence as well. And with all of you, at the end of the day, the things I do, I do for my community and that all in includes all of you. And I think that that's really the key. So even though we're invited here to try to provide some direction and inspiration, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm inspired by you all. And I think that that's really what makes this work sustainable. It's not just, you know, working at it, but, but learning and growing and building community with people like yourselves and um, understanding that, that you all provide as much um, as those of us who, you know, get to be on the presenting side. I think that that's often forgotten or, or you've just overlooked altogether. Uh, you know, I, I come out of these things energized and wanting to continue after meeting, meeting folks, regardless of their age, there's always something to learn and there's always something to contribute. So I just appreciate that you're all willing to give me some of your time and that we get to share time together. It's great to be able to to just come back and share. Okay, I'll go ahead and, and begin. And, and Enrique, please uh, join in at, at any point if you want to disagree or add to a, a point or whatever you want to do. So I would like to you know, just emphasize again that the point um, in my mind of any type of so-called training or you know presentation is to help you in terms of not what to think but how to think that's very important and so I will define terms and concepts and let me just preface it by saying there is no one definition to anything uh, that's part, I think, of the learning process is to understand that there's many different perspectives, many different definitions, but I will share a few to just add to your, your knowledge. So I want to begin with a very short quiz, and not to worry, I'm not going to pick on anyone, and I'm not going to ask you to, uh, to respond, but I am going to ask you to answer this in your own head. So the First question is on a hundred percent basis, what percent do you believe that genetics plays in terms of health and health outcomes? What percent do you think genetics plays? 
the next has to do with healthcare. What percent do you believe healthcare plays in terms of your health and, and health outcomes? The third is behavior. What percent of your own personal behavior? You know, your behavior could include diet, exercise, other types of health uh, behaviors. What percentage of do, do you believe that the, your behavior has to do with your health and health out? So let's start with genetics. The answer is roughly 5%. Now, when I first learned this, I thought this must be wrong. I'm overweight. I know that genetics plays a much bigger role in terms of why I'm overweight. It can't, it can't be me, right? Well, it was only 5%. So I said, okay. So then, you know, you look at healthcare. The answer in terms of health care is that it's roughly only about 10% is related to your health and outcomes. Again, this is in your lifespan, right? It's not just a snapshot. Your behavior accounts for roughly 30%. That's a pretty big chunk. You know, that tells you that you have a lot of control over health and health outcomes in terms of your own behavior. That leaves, for those of you that like to do the math, 55%. 55% is related to social determinants of health. And I'll talk a little bit more about that, but just to kind of give you the big picture, there are many different aspects to our health and health outcomes that go beyond health care. Health is more than health care. So that's an important um, point that I wanted to, to get across. Was any of this new or surprising to you? So now we've talked about health, now I just want to take a minute in terms of talking about what does equity mean? What does health equity mean? And how is that tied to public health and social determinants of health? Equity basically means that it's a process of ensuring that programs, practices, policies are just and provide equal opportunity for outcomes for every person. It really is promoting justice, fairness within procedures. So if you look at that concept of equity in the big picture, and then you tie it to health equity, Health equity is basically social justice in health. So again, if you can see that health is made up in all of those different areas that you know, we just looked at, then looking at health and tying it together with equity, that's where you get the health equity. It shows that it goes 
way beyond just healthcare, but it really is related to many different aspects, which are called social determinants of health, or I refer to them as social conditions. And I think that's part of what you know we try to do is to demystify some of these terms and just look at you know what the basic meaning is and how it ties into a bigger framework. So health equity means that everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. That means again, in terms of the equity piece that you, that's where the social justice comes in. That it, you know, with respect to the treatment of more advantaged populations versus less advantaged groups when it comes to health and healthcare and all those conditions that are in between. Social determinants of health are referring again to social conditions. So you probably have heard that term in many different contexts, social determinants of health. I am hoping that you leave the session today having more confidence in understanding that many of these terms and concepts are just that. But if you understand what they mean, then you can apply them in your own situation and you can apply them and understand them with confidence and understanding that they're rooted again in social justice. And that's where health equity ties in. So social determinants, different people in different groups define them differently. The federal government does this report called Healthy People, Healthy People 2020, now there's a Healthy People 2030. And these concepts, equity, social determinants of health have become much more in use, I say in the last 10, 15 years. I've been doing this work forever, never even had heard the concept health equity, yet the organization I was involved in that's what it was. It was a health equity foundation, but the, that term was nowhere in the bylaws, in the articles of incorporation, but everything that we did was based on that framework. So my guess is that a lot of you have been doing, have really understand these concepts that I'm talking about in a way and in a deeper way than I do because you live it. So you, you know, do understand it. This is just another framework to help you fit it into a, a bigger picture. So one definition of social determinants of health are the conditions and the environment in which people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect a wide range of health functioning and quality of life outcomes, as well as risks. The World Health Organization adds that these circumstances are in turn shaped by a wider set of forces, including economics, 
social policies, and politics. Social determinants of health, depending on who you talk to, are divided into different areas or domains. And again, none of this is new to you. I'm simply presenting it maybe in a way that you've not heard of before, looking at a, at a very big picture. So these can include areas such as the domains of economic, education, healthcare, including access and quality of healthcare, neighborhoods, built environment, social and community context. How many of you know what um, built environment is? Built environment is a term that's used to describe anything that is not of the natural environment. So built environment can include architecture, buildings, transportation, uh, public parks, and any of those, you know, bikeability, bike paths, anything again that is built. So built environment has a lot to do with health outcomes. I mean, think about in your mind, think about two different communities. One where there is more than adequate built environment where people can bike, where people can walk, where, you know, shopping, food is in uh, close uh, vicinities where there's little population or pollution. Think about a place that you would describe as having very healthy environment and then compare it to one that is the opposite where there's you know a, a lot of pollution, there might be a lot of congestion, traffic, there aren't any bike paths, there's you know no food, healthy food close by. Think about the differences in those communities and how that will affect someone's health. That's why neighborhoods and built environment is included as one of those conditions, social conditions or determinants of health. Another that people understand just intuitively, but maybe you don't realize it is a part of social conditions or social determinants of health is called social and community context. This has to do with your relationships with other people. Children whose one or, or both parents are incarcerated have challenges. Children in foster care systems, children, teens that are in an environment where there's a lot of violence, where there is bullying, where you don't have an adult person at least one adult person that you can talk to about concerns. All of this has to do with social and community context. It is all related to social determinants of health. So how does this tie into the communities that we're talking about. Well, let's look at COVID, for example. What we found with COVID is that people of color, predominantly Native American, Hispanic, Black population, and 
folks that live in rural communities and folks with lower incomes were all disproportionately impacted by COVID. Health equity requires that we ask the question, why? Why is that the case? Why are certain populations more impacted by COVID than others? That is at the root of this discussion in terms of you know, how does health equity, social justice, public health, social determinants of health, how do those all come together? And so one of the activities that I was involved in at Quanama um, is I was there when the pandemic started is I was able to bring in probably about 4 million into New Mexico just to deal with COVID. And our focus was on working with those populations disproportionately impacted. And we focused on vaccine hesitancy. That is those populations that had a lot of concern and were hesitant to be vaccinated as well as misinformation and disinformation. Those were big issues that we had to deal with early in the pandemic. And so you can see on the Department of Health dashboard, you can see county by county and a state map with, it gives you a visual and it gives you numbers in terms of the different counties and the vaccination rate. And a lot of that is partisan. You can see it in terms of the politics and that was one of the issues that we were dealing with is how there was such a division uh, that it was very partisan in terms of, of vaccines. Again, tied to health equity and social conditions of, of health. There were a couple of activities that the state did early and they did well related to COVID. One is they were able to bring in a lot of money into the state and they wisely gave the money out in a public-private manner, meaning that state government partnered with nonprofits, which are considered uh, um, in the private sector, private nonprofit versus the public or governmental. And so that public-private collaboration was a very important step the Kellogg Foundation also got involved as did the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and other large funders. So that was a positive step in that there was an effort to do a public-private collaboration. Another positive step is that the state actually came up with a COVID-19 vaccine equity plan. And, you know, that was, uh, pretty progressive in terms of understanding and realizing very early on that COVID was disproportionately impacting people of color, low income and rural communities as a result of lots of um, inequity. So having that vaccine equity plan and the plan really focused on 
equitable allocation, distribution and access to vaccines. So it really pushed hard in terms of using communication, using media uh, to get information to those communities most impacted. And another strategy, and, but another strategy that was employed is using trusted messengers. In other words, people from those communities to get the message out, whether that was the youth, whether it was faith-based, the churches, nonprofits, it is a strategy that is can be you know very effective but in doing all of that we were still fighting misinformation and disinformation and not just at the local level but at the federal level you know where we had a president talking about you know the china virus i don't know how you would categorize that whether that's false news disinformation nonetheless it caused a lot of damage and was racist and caused a lot of problem for our asian american friends and neighbors so these are just some examples of how all of this ties into covid covid brought a lot of things to light in new mexico you know i'm one of these glass half full kind of people i always see try to see the positive in everything. And, and what came out of this and what we're still dealing with is we got funds that we can use, not just in terms of addressing the pandemic, but in rebuilding and looking, you know, it, it brought to light many of these structural inequalities, systemic barriers. It really raised these questions, it brought them to light. And we have an opportunity with groups such as yours, you know, youth are going to be instrumental in terms of moving forward and seeing these issues for what they are and learning these tools, learning this information so that you can be better equipped with your own lived experiences in your own communities to move forward in terms of all the tools that you're getting to, you know, being involved in the solution and seeing it again from this broader perspective and answering that health equity question, why are these populations more impacted? We also saw some of the outcomes, some of the fallout. You know, one, of course, was the digital divide, the lack of internet broadband equity in New Mexico. You know, it impacted us significantly in terms of telehealth or lack of education, remote learning, remote work, you know, on and on and on. COVID also impacted certain populations, the service industry, which are heavily people of, of color in New Mexico. There are so many different ways that it impacted all of those social conditions. And that's what I've been trying to do is kind of paint this picture of how everything is interrelated, how everything ties, and how valuable your role in terms of, you know, being youth organizers, being having a deep understanding of social justice and how powerful you can be in terms of being part of the change of the solution. You are listening to Generation Justice, broadcasting on 89.9 KUNM-FM. This evening, we share a presentation on social determinants of health and health equity, presented by Dr. Dolores Roybal, a native Northern New Mexican who has extensive experience in the nonprofit and philanthropic sector. 
and Enrique Cartiel, the Executive Director for the Bernalillo County Community Health Council, who has been a public health worker for the last 18 years. I'm going to pause at this point and invite Enrique to, to jump in. And then at some point, I would like to come back if, if there's time and talk about some ideas of changing the narrative. Thank you. That was great. I think really a lot of things that come up are not differences as far as disagreements. It's just we all look at things from slightly different angles. And I think that's really what helps us to be comprehensive about different things. You know, really looking at what is the framework for social determinants from the Health Equity Council. I look at it this way, and, and since I'm the director that influences the organization, really that in order to have health equity, we need to have social equity, right? Because, you know, everything that Dr. Royval laid out really was about who has access to things, who has control over things. That makes up the differences, right? In, I believe, 2007 or 2008, the World Health Organization published a document on social determinants of health. And part of the document said people die at different ages because of policies that were implemented. And they weren't implemented by accident, right? They were implemented on purpose. And, you know, who gets access to what? Who gets pulled over by the police? Who gets encouraged in school and who gets discouraged in school? All of those things have an impact on our life above and beyond whether we finish high school or not, right? And we know a young male that does not finish high school has 10 times more chance of being in jail than one that finishes high school, right? And it goes up each level with college or master's degree. So it's important to think about how interrelated all of these aspects of our life are, right? Our built environment, our social environment, our home environment, you know, the relationships that we have. So the other part of that is we can't have social equity unless there's equity and power and resources, you know, to lay it all in one brief comment, you know, is we need social equity in order to have health equity. And in order to have social equity, we need equity and power and we need equity and resources. And there's tons of research that, but we know in our own lives, right? If someone has the power to push you around and they abuse that power, that has an impact on us, right? If we don't have the, the significant power to, to resist that or to get away from that uh, or to change that, right, we suffer. And that impacts our health. You know, we're seeing now, you know, it's, it, well, we see it all the time, but it's in the news now, you know, the, the impact of people who spend millions of dollars make sure that people have easier access to firearms than you have to a license to for a business. There was, there was a good meme on, on, I think it was on Instagram, that pointed out there's more paperwork involved in you buying a taco than there is in you buying a firearm. I think that's really important, right? Because you have to have regulations on food. And so we've acknowledged that we've accepted that. As a society, we haven't accepted the same type of regulations on firearms. And we see that playing out with young people shooting each other or school shootings or shootings in malls. And that has to do with the firearms industry having lots of power. Part of the power in our society is resources, is money, right? People who have money influence policy. They influence who gets elected. They influence what shows get on TV or what gets on the radio. That lack of equity there impacts us all on a daily basis. There is a public health scholar named Vicente Navarro who has been writing about public health since the 70s. When the document came out on social determinants of health, 
from the World Health Organization saying, you know, policies are implemented on purpose, therefore we can change them. He wrote a critique of that document and it's like a 250 page document. So luckily his critique was only like a couple of pages. But really, he said, you know, it's not just that there's this invisible class of people that control things. He's like, we have their names. We know where they live. There are people who profit and benefit from the early death and disease of our peoples, our communities. There's somebody making money off of that, right? There's people who make money. You know, I don't know what it is now during the middle of the pandemic. Bullets were like a dollar a piece or nine millimeter bullets. And that's apparently way more expensive than what it was before the pandemic, right? Somebody's making a profit off of that. The same happened with wood. It's happening right now with gasoline. It's not like all of a sudden there's a super shortage of gasoline. It is harder to get gasoline because of what's happening with Russia. But part of it is people are just deciding that they're going to make more profit. A few years ago, there was a group that bought a large amount of crude oil in order that they could hold it and drive prices up and then they could resell it. You and I don't have that kind of capacity, right? We can't buy enough of something that we're going to change the price of it and then we're going to make a lot of profit, right? That concentrated wealth impacts people's access to gas, which impacts people's access. Are they going to go to work, right? There's people who are considering like, I need to change my job because I can't drive this far to work every day anymore, right? And that's fine for those of us who work on Zoom, uh, but for people who have to be there in person, that's a huge impact when you start thinking of, gee, can I afford to go you know, to work or not, right? If you can't afford to go to work, what do you do? Because how are you going to get money to pay your rent? How are you going to get money to pay food? The same is happening with housing. Uh, we see that the housing market has uh, become super expensive. And during the pandemic, people were not employed in the same way. So now we have this increase in homelessness. And so uh, the response hasn't been, let's build more housing. Let's make sure people get there. Because there was the moratorium on, on evicting people for not paying their rent, but people were still allowed to be evicted for other reasons. That was really underreported. And so there is a lot of little dynamics like that, that that impact things, right? And so what do we do? We criminalize people sleeping outdoors, but we don't criminalize somebody throwing somebody out on the street because person throwing somebody out on the street, a landlord, there's somebody with money, there's somebody with means. Right. And so it's important to look at how that power interplays. I kind of just threw out all, all my stuff because Dr. Ray Ball covered like so much very thoroughly that I'm like, oh, I can just build off that. I, 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 there's not a whole bunch for me to go back. So, but one of the key questions in there is what is my vision of the world in regards to health equity or based on health equity? And it goes back to that social equity and equity of power. You know, we, we call the United States a democracy, yet very few people turn out to vote and make decisions as to who are the representatives. There's very little input or influence the average person has on somebody once they're elected, right? The people who have influence over elected officials are people with money who can help them fund their uh, re-election campaigns. And so it's really important to look at like, how do we be equal with each other, right? On a daily basis, we, we have to create that working for ourselves, the type of equality where no one's in charge and so things fall apart, right? There's still responsibilities, there's still accountability. And I think that's important. You know, some models of equality try to take out, you know, the idea of leadership with the idea that we're all leaders and we are our leaders, but somebody has to be accountable for specific things, right? To make sure things happen. And I think that's really important for us to look at where are we accountable for something in our community. Out of all the groups I've been in, 
the ones that work better are ones where the each person in the group tries to think about each other person in the group, even though one person may be officially the boss or the leader or the president or you know the chairperson. If everybody in the group is trying to think about everybody else, then we make sure people don't get left behind. And then we make sure people aren't left out. And I think that's really key and important. So for me, the vision of health equity is really the world where we're all working together to look at what are the problems and how do we make sure we don't leave anybody behind. You know, New Mexico, we did really well at the beginning around physical distancing and wearing masks. And that, in my opinion, uh, was cut too short. And this is something I've been thinking about since the U.S. hit 1 million deaths of COVID, is why is it that the U.S. is 5% of the world's population, but 20% of the COVID deaths? Because at the end of the day, a lot of the rules and regulations around whether or not we wear masks, whether or not businesses were closed, uh, what was the social distancing, had to do with somebody making a profit. And so that profit killed who knows how many hundreds of thousands of U.S. Uh, residents. Those folks aren't going to be compensated. Their families aren't going to be compensated, right? The, the economy is going to move on. For a few weeks, there was a lot of places that paid like an extra $5 an hour for hazard pay for people who had to be in person during the pandemic, like grocery store workers and people like that. And then that disappeared. There were countries that paid people uh, essentially a, a living wage to stay home for several months. You know, in the U.S., uh, we were supposed to be happy and excited about, you know, a $1,500 check uh, per household. And for a large part of the country, that doesn't even cover one month's rent. Breaking all of those things down, right, and, and looking at it as a puzzle and coming at it from different angles is important. I started in public health as a health promotion specialist. And the Ottawa Charter for Health Promotion was written in 1986, right? And so the concept of health equity was formalized in public health in 1986. Now it's common conversation, but like Dr. Roybal said, you know, it has been around for a long time. It wasn't cool. It wasn't catchy. It, you know, it didn't get any traction really until after probably 2005 as a term. Really, this is why I do this kind of work. Right. Because sadly, I know and I believe you probably all know people who died way too early and way too young. And the fact that I'm still around to me gives me a responsibility of doing something in, in those people's memory to try to have the next generations and even the generations of Dr. Roy Ballin and myself not die early. That this really is life and death work. And sometimes that's the only way I get out of bed is, is like, I know I may only put one grain of sand towards that effort, but that grain of sand will add up over time. And with your grain of sand and everybody else's, you know, we can make a difference. But it, it's really key, you know, like Dr. Roy Ballin said, you know, Health equity is public health, right? Social justice is public health in action. And I just realized I shared a quote today. Okay, here, I looked out, it's right here. Uh, so I shared this 12 years ago on Facebook, uh, but it's in my memories for today. So medicine is a social science and politics is nothing but medicine writ large uh, by Rudolf Virchow. That was in the 1800s. Public health, the way we know it today really came out of social justice work. Frederick Ingalls did an analysis of the housing conditions of working class people in London, England, and it really just put it on society of how terrible people were living. He was fired, you know, and there's a really long quote, and I'm not going to look for it now, but it's, it's a quote about a social murder, that if one person, you know, killed somebody, you know, we'll call it murder or manslaughter, we know what to do. 
But when society kills off a whole bunch of people by neglecting them or abusing them, you know, it's social murder and we don't have a way to deal with that uh, in the same way. We have so much more control of the narrative than we understand. And I guess what I mean by that is, is I have been noticing more and more, you know, just because I'm old doesn't mean I don't learn something all the time. And, and what I have learned is how guilty I have been of perpetuating certain um, terms and concepts in a way that's really not constructive. So for example, I'm a grant writer. You know, I bring in lots of money um, and use terms like, you know, majority minority state. New Mexico is a majority minority state. You know, we have a certain population of color. And then one day I had one of those aha moments and it's like, why am I using that term majority minority? Who, who's the minority and what does that mean? And using that term minority automatically marginalizes certain people. I'm Hispanic. I don't think I'm a minority. Another term is, is wealth. When I went to school, University of Denver for my master's, it was the first time I was told that I, that I came from a poor community. And I'm like, what do you mean I came from a poor community? Well, the socioeconomic data shows, you know, in terms of the you know, income per capita, blah, blah, blah. And I, even then I pushed back. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what age, you know, I pushed back and said, I don't agree. Who defines what wealth is, right? We had our own homes. We bartered, we bartered, you know, wood for apples or whatever. We never considered ourselves poor. You know, who defines what wealth is? Who defines, you know, is a majority minority? That I think when you position yourself as a certain population, be loud and proud. You know, don't put yourself as in any way, regardless of what position you're in, whether it's race, ethnicity, age. I've been discriminated so much when I was younger. It was because I was the youngest. Now it's because I'm old. It's like, come on, people. When you position yourself in a certain way, you know, do it from an asset or a strengths-based perspective. Rural communities are often lumped in with social conditions as a negative. I'm from a rural community. I don't see it as a negative. So a lot has to do with the way you position it, the way you frame it, you know, be, be loud and proud and, and keep that in mind in terms of whatever position or group that you're a part of is, you know, you, you need to change the narrative. You need to change the way you think. I was a grant maker for many years. And nonprofits would come in kind of with their hat in their hand and say, oh, you know, I, you know, we just need money and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, this is my job is to provide resources where there is need. Don't come like begging for money. That's grant makers jobs. That's foundation job. So I have no problem in getting money. If I believe in a group I'm working with, I'm loud and proud. That was great. I love that. I think a lot of that too is like in thinking about you know this month as um you know being pride right just like we have black history month and all of these other things there's the part where we need to to become proud because that's what helps us organize you don't well maybe you can but it's a lot harder to organize if you're feeling bad about yourself right because then it's harder to convince people to do something you know whereas if you're feeling proud you're feeling good about yourself right that that gives you some ins inspiration to organize yeah. But we also have to look at the reality, right? You know, pride, pride came from the Stonewall riot 
And so Pride has now become this kind of corporate holiday, right? Where companies just put rainbows in their logos and they, they think they're okay, just like they did with Black Lives Matter and like they'll do with everything else, you know? But it's important to to not just say love is love and, and you know, because that, what does that really mean, right? I know, I know what people are trying to say with that, but it doesn't get to the point that police have been beating and, and murdering folks for not being straight, right? Whatever that's supposed to mean also forever, right? That people are, are being killed in nightclubs, right? And so part of the organizing beyond the healing part is also just what does community self-defense mean, right? How do we organize to defend and protect each other? And it doesn't have to mean, going back to the earlier conference, it doesn't mean like everybody goes and gets a concealed carry license and now you feel safer, right? Because at the end, that really is not. But how do we just learn to watch out for each other, take care of each other, support each other, uh, and provide safety, right? And that that means a lot of different things, you know, depending on the context and the community, right? Because like Dr. Royval said, you know, in a community that's considered poor, right? Which kind of poor are they talking about and why people felt okay, right? People felt fine. Uh, people had what they needed. And that's, you know, it's I'm poor compared to, you know, Jeff Bezos relatively, but I also have a place to live and a job and I have food, right? So I'm not under what would be considered absolute poverty, right? And so there's just, just a lot of different ways to look at it. I think that the main part of, of health promotion is the concept that we don't do public health for people. People do public health for themselves. And I think that, you know, when you say empowering, that gets tricky, right? Because then it's, it means like I have power and I'm letting giving you power or whatever. But what we want to do is encourage people to claim their power, claim whatever power you have and build from that and build community power. You know, community can and should hold, you know, government accountable for what it should be doing and supposed to be doing. Law enforcement, they're government employees. They often use the term, you know, the police and civilians as if they're the military, but they're not the military. They're government employees. They're civilians themselves. And so for us to, as community, to try to push back on that as a norm, that it's okay uh, that they abuse folks or, or push folks around community self-definition and community self-determination. What that means is that part of this power dynamic is in the a community, whatever that community is, whether it's geographic or by area of interest, whatever that community is, that the community define itself. So example, one program I used to run had to do with, with immigrant-led, immigrant-serving organizations. And so we wanted to come up with the definition of what immigrant is. And someone came up with something. And I said, uh, you know, why don't we let all the folks on this group that are immigrant-led, immigrant-serving, why don't we let them define it? And so they did. And that's what we use. The second part is the community self-determination in terms of what are the community norms the value. What does the community see as the need, issue, or problem, and consequently the solution? Because the way you define a problem will dictate the solution. This is true in life. The way you define a problem or an issue will dictate the solution. Sometimes a community may not see the same problem as you at all. So I think leaving that control and that power within that community, however it is defined, is an important, critical step. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Dolores Roybal, for the outstanding work you do for our community. Thank you, Enrique Cardial, for sharing your passion for justice reform with us. I appreciate the way that you both frame social determinants of health and health equity, particularly for communities of color. Thank you for sharing about your important work. Now we bring you the song Equality Street by Brent and Johnson, a song about an ideal world that cultivates love. Let me take you down Equality Street. You never know the people you meet at the end of the street is a golden gate. It let in love, it don't let in hate, no. this hour of education. We'd like to thank our presenters, Dr. Dolores Roybal and Enrique Cardial, for sharing their knowledge and expertise on social determinants of health. Tonight's hour of radio was produced by Roberta Real and Barbara Ramirez, with production assistance from Madumita Santanam and myself, Sunandita Santanam. And thank you to our fellows, Jessica Arevalo and Andrew Eccles for introducing our guests. We wanna give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We're also active on social media, so find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and follow our playlists on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, the Con Alma Health Foundation, NMDOH Better Together, and of course, all of you who've contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Please remember to stay up to date with your vaccinations by visiting vaccinenm.org. That's vaccinenm.org. Make sure you're wearing masks and maintaining social distancing protocols to keep you, your loved ones, and your community safe. Good night, New Mexico.